Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and your host for this weekly review of all the latest news and developments affecting the investment trust sector. My thanks to JP Morgan Asset Management for agreeing to sponsor the podcast, which as a result will now remain free for the foreseeable future. Moneymakers is an independent research and publishing venture with a mission to explain and inform. But I must remind you that for regulatory reasons, nothing you hear from any speaker today should be regarded as constituting individual investment advice. Remember also that past performance, while relevant, is not a reliable guide to future performance. This week I have been away in Europe, so my colleague Stuart Watson will be summarising the news from the investment trust sector this week. I did, however, have time to catch up with Colette Ord, who is the infrastructure analyst at Numis Securities, to hear why she and Numis themselves are positive on the infrastructure sector at the moment, both the renewable energy trusts and the older established mid-market and social infrastructure trusts, all of which offer significant yields and have a prospect for growing, often inflation-linked cash flows from here. And then I have my second part of my conversation with Ben Conway, the head of fund management at Hawksmoor Investment Management, about some of the other challenges that he sees facing the investment trust sector, not just the cost disclosure issue that we discussed at length two weeks ago. Both the FTSE All Share and the Investment Trust Index declined by about 1% over the first four days of the week. But the focus was once again on central banks and their interest rate decisions. On Wednesday, the Fed opted to keep US interest rates unchanged, and perhaps more surprisingly, the Bank of England did the same on Thursday. That marked the end of a run of 14 successive increases from the Bank of England that stretches all the way back to late 2021, and seems to have come about after the lower-than-expected UK inflation print for August that was released on Wednesday this week. Markets still seem to be expecting a further quarter point rise in both US and UK rates, either later this year or early next year. But as usual, that could change as they receive further data points. The yield on 10-year gilts fell slightly this week, but there was a small rise in the yield on US 10-year treasuries, with the US economy still proving to be remarkably strong, despite the rapid rise in rates we've seen over the last two years. There were plenty of trust results this week, and Jonathan clearly picked a good period to be away. But let's start with some more general trust news. GCP Infrastructure, ticker GCP, and GCP Asset Backed Income, ticker GABI or GABI, they have ceased their merger discussions, and that was after a significant minority of GABI shareholders raised doubt about the deal. Both trusts will now focus on using spare funds to pay down their debts and to buy back their shares. GABI will also introduce a continuation vote, the first one to take place next year, and then every four years thereafter. The cost of the discussions will be absorbed by Gravis, the fund manager of the two trusts, rather than the trusts themselves. Gabby shares gained a little on this news, but the share prices of both trusts are now backed around the same level they were prior to the deal being announced in early August. I think these events show that while merger deals are still likely across the sector, they are not always easy to complete, even when you've got two funds run by the same manager. This was quite a complicated deal, though, and also briefly included a third fund, RM Infrastructure Income. Gore Street Energy Storage, ticker GSF, comfortably survived its first continuation vote at its AGM this week. It had just 3% of shareholders voting against. 
Nippon Active Value, ticker NAVF, has now moved to the premium list of the London Stock Exchange. This was after its shareholders approved amendments to its investment policy, designed to accommodate the extra assets it will receive as part of its own three-way merger with Aberdeen Japan and Atlantis Japan Growth. And we also saw a small disposal from Hickel Infrastructure, ticker HICL. It will receive 37 million for its interest in the Bradford Schools PFI projects, and that's an 8% increase on their latest carrying value in its accounts. The proceeds will be used to partly pay down the trust's revolving credit facility. Turning now to annual results, mostly to the 30th of June. And firstly, Murray Income, MUT, celebrated its 100th year this year with an 8.8% NEV return. That was a little ahead of the 7.9% from the FTSE All Share. Murray Income also marked 50 years of increasing its dividend, and it's gone from 0.47p in 1973 to 37.5p this past year. There was a nice little potted history of the trust in its accounts, although it did say most of its older records were destroyed in a serious flood in the late 1970s. The discount on the trust did wind a bit last year, so the trust bought back about 4% of its shares. Sticking with UK Equity Income and City of London, ticker CTY now has a 57-year record of increasing its dividend, but its return last year was slightly lower at 4.5%, so a little behind the FTSE's 7.9%. The trust was quick to point out that it is ahead over 3, 5 and 10 years though. The shares often trade at the premium, so it was able to raise £153 million from new share issues last year, and over the last decade its share count has increased by 93%. European Opportunities, ticker EOT, managed by Alexander Darwin, of course. That produced a 3.3% return over the 12 months to the 31st of May. That was a little behind the 6.9% from MSCI Europe. That's continuing a trend we've seen at this trust for the last five years or so, although obviously it had a spectacular run of form when it was launched in 2000 all the way up to 2018. There was a 40% increase in the dividend, although the trust only yields 0.4%. And there's also a reduction in the management charge. Brown Advisory US Smaller Companies, ticker BASC, had annual results to the 30th of June. The NAV return here was 9.8%, and that was ahead of the 7.5% from the Russell 2000 index, the index of US small cap shares. This trust has a continuation vote every three years, and the next one is coming up this November. And that will be the first vote since Brown took over the management of the trust from Jupiter back in early 2021. JP Morgan Midcap, ticker JPF, had annual results to the 30th of June. NAV return here was a 7.5%, and that was ahead of the FTSE 250, its benchmark, which returned 3.0%. It put this down to good stock selection. Trust was also keen to point out that the forward PE multiple of the FTSE 250 is around 10.8 times, and that's well below the 20-year average of 13.7 times. Also highlighted various commentators saying that UK midcaps seem to be at their cheapest relative to global stocks for about the last two decades. The trust also reduced its fees, and it moved the basis of charging from total assets to net assets. Supermarket income REIT, ticker SUPR, saw its NAV decline from 115p to 93p. That's a drop of 19%. 
most of this happened in the first half of the year and obviously it's down to the higher rental yields that we've seen as interest rates have risen. A 6p dividend that was up from 5.94p last year but it was partly uncovered as earnings were just 5.8p. Next year's dividend target has been set at 6.06p so that's another 1% increase. Turning now to interims and there were lots of them. First HG Capital ticker HGT produced a 4.6% return. Disposals were the main feature of the half year with the trust receiving 229 million of proceeds but just investing 33 million and that's a trend that's continued into the second half of the year as well. Dunedin Income Growth ticker DIG reported a 5.5% NAV return and that was for the six months to 31st of July and ahead of the 0.8% from the FTSE All Share over that period. This trust has recently amended its investment policy so it can invest a bit more in overseas companies and it's increased the limit there from 20 to 25%. Aurora, ticker ARR, a UK all-cap trust run by Phoenix Asset Management. This did very well in the period it produced a very impressive 12.4% return from its concentrated portfolio and that was well ahead of the all shares 2.5%. Vice Career Opportunity, ticker WKOF, this declined 3.4%, whereas its benchmark gained 6.7%. This is a very specialised trust that invests in Korean preference shares, but it still has a healthy lead over its benchmark since it was admitted to AIM back in 2013. Bailey Gifford Shin Nippon, ticker BGS, the Japanese small cap trust, saw its NAV decline by 9.7%, and that was compared to a 1.1% increase in its benchmark. Bailey Gifford's distinctive growth style has been out of favour for a couple of years now and in Shin Nippon's case its manufacturing holdings suffered from excess inventory and the weak Chinese economy. It was also another difficult period for third point investors that's ticker TPOU which is the hedge fund trust that's run by Dan Loeb. It declined 3.8% whereas the MSCI World Index climbed 15.4% and the S&P did even better with a 16.9% increase. Third point didn't have much exposure to the large tech names that drove the market forwards and it also suffered from having some market hedges on as well. The trust said it doesn't intend to put Josh Targoff forward for re-election at its next AGM. He's the representative of third point, the fund's managers. So from that point forward, all its directors will now be independent. India Capital Growth, ticker IGC, produced a 7.6% gain for the six months to June. That was a little behind the 10.2% from the BSE Midcap Index. It also reminded investors that it's got a redemption opportunity coming up at the end of this year. That's at a maximum 3% discount, and that no doubt was a factor behind its discount narrowing from 8% to 4% over this period. 101 Capital Growth produced a 3.4% NAV return. The ticker there is HGEN. Investors clearly still not sure how to value its portfolio though. Despite its sort of flat NAV performance since its IPO a couple of years ago, the discount in the first half of this year ranged between 20 and 60%. And just to illustrate how the nine companies it has stakes in produced combined revenues of only about £50 million over the last 12 months. Talking to Citywide though, the managers did point out that they hoped that some of their investments might be exited over the next 12 months or so. Sticking with renewables, we had three other trusts reporting interims. Downing Renewables and Infrastructure, ticker DORE, produced a 1.6% return. 
Green Coat Renewables figure GRP produced slightly better, 3.5%, while Octopus Renewables ticker ORIT was the worst of the bunch with just 0.9%. All three trusts have suffered from winding discounts this year, particularly Downing, so their share prices have seen significant declines despite those small NAV gains. Three more trusts reporting in the debt sector, MB Global Monthly Income, MBMI, produced a 3.8% gain, although this trust is in the managed wind down now. M&G Credit Income, ticker MGCI, very similar return of 3.6%. And the best of the bunch was Pollen Street, ticker P-O-L-N, which had an NAV return of 9.1%. This is mostly exposed to floating rates, hence the better performance there. Pollen Street also published proposals on becoming a commercial company rather than an investment company, so it's soon going to leave the sector if that change is approved. Finally, we also had interims from Roundhill Music Royalty, ticker RHM. That's another trust that looks set to leave the sector, as it recommended a takeover offer a couple of weeks ago. And the Life Science REIT, ticker LABS or LABS, which saw a small 0.4% NAV return over the last six months. Subscribers to the Moneymakers Circle can find a summary of all this week's announcements over at the website, where this week we also have a profile of Global Smaller Companies Trust and the latest editor's notebook looking at discount opportunities. Now back to Jonathan and his conversation with Colette Ord. This week I had the chance to have one of our regular catch-ups with Colette Ord, who is the Infrastructure Analyst at Numis Securities. Obviously, we have reached an interesting point in the market cycle. We have seen derating continue this year. But if it's true that interest rates have stabilised, Corlett, if we think we're near the peak, does that mean, in your view, that we are at a point where the derating of infrastructure is finished, done? Well, I would certainly hope so. Look, I think the macroeconomics we've long discussed this year and the uncertainty around peak rates, inflationary prints driving share price performance as well. We do seem to be getting to the end of that cycle now and and hopefully focus will return on the fundamentals of these portfolios, which, again, we think are just fundamentally undervalued by the market, as is consistently being proven by the transactional evidence delivered from the listed companies themselves and by the transactions we see in the private markets. So we'd hope for a return to fundamentals and a deep dive into the quality of these cash flows, I think will give investors some confidence to put some money to work at these valuations, which frankly, we have not seen persist for this long in as many of these strategies since the sector existed back in 2006. So it is a relatively new sector in that state as a listed vehicle. And that whole period has been characterised for most of that period by falling interest rates. So I guess it's not a total surprise that investors seem to react in a knee-jerk way, almost sort of one for one with the movement in gilt yields, for example. But as you say, if we're near the end of that cycle, then there's obviously reason to look at these things in some detail. Would it be a fair summary to say that all these infrastructure trusts generally have target rates of return? And if the derating is finished, then you would be, in most cases, confident that they're going to be able to deliver those target rates of return. And if on top of that, the discounts do start to narrow as buyers return, that you might actually do better than the target returns, at least for a period. Would that be a logical inference from where we are? I think it would be. I think, look, we know that buying investment trusts on a discount 
can give some very attractive returns far and above the target returns, as you say, that are set out. It's worth saying at the portfolio level, you know, the target returns, the implied returns that share prices are telling us are possible just from the existing portfolios are well in excess of target returns already. So at the portfolio level, we're looking at average nominal returns across the whole piece. There's 30 stocks in our universe that we look at varying strategies from core mid-market to renewable energy, etc. And that average nominal return implied by share prices at the moment is 10%. And the real return is around 7 We think that is quite an interesting opportunity set. But as you say, it's share prices that investors can access, not NAVs. And one particular stock that has been around since the sector has existed, I won't name it because I haven't done the calculation for the other two stocks that have been around just as long, but I'm sure the numbers aren't, aren't too dissimilar. But if you'd have bought the discounts when they last existed at double digit levels, which is back in 2008, and you'd held the shares from their low point for a year, you'd have had a 55% share price total return over one year and and 75% of you'd held that share for three years. Now, obviously, we wouldn't suggest that's the kind of returns that you're going to get. Of course, that's just the mathematical calculation of, of what somebody may have achieved if they'd managed to call it bang on the bottom, just as we moved into a re-rating. And as we know, that's pretty difficult to do. And we're not suggesting that. But it does, as you say, illustrate that point that buying on a discount, if you think that the discount is fundamentally mispricing the risk of the underlying cash flows, which we do, and that the discount isn't there because NAVs, net asset values will decline to a great degree, which we don't believe is the case. We have seen some modest NAV declines with discount rate increases to reflect the rising rate environment going through valuations. That is a key input, of course, into the discount rate. But we've seen that largely offset with other also interesting features of the sector, such as the positive correlation of this sector to inflation. And the high inflation has been able to offset some of the negative impact of those higher discount rates. So, yeah, we think buying on a discount has proven historically to be a good thing to do, not just in infrastructure, of course, but um, it is, we think, an interesting time to be looking at the shares. We'll talk about some of the subsectors in a moment. But the other factor is, of course, that uh, some of these infrastructure trusts are in better shape than others. Some have maybe not got the balance sheets they'd like. Some of them are quite big enough, perhaps. Though some of them are very large. So is it a case that actually, if we do see a revival, do you think it'll be general or do you think it will be rewarding some trusts in particular, those which have actually not only got the best profile of future cash flows, but have managed their balance sheets and so on? No, I think performance will be a little bit more stock specific. I think there'll be a general positive momentum in ratings, but it's not a homogenous risk peer group. We've always said that and never more so has that been true. So we do think those companies that have listened to shareholders, given the additional transparency and data points that have been asked, and I must say most management teams have done that, they've answered the call for additional transparency on valuations. So if that's the case, then we think those that have delivered that transparency and listened to shareholders and thought about things like capital allocation and be very clear on priorities. We have seen an increased amount of buybacks, which of course have never really been a feature of the infrastructure sector. And we have seen an increased number of those. We are seeing those funds using divestment programmes increasingly so to prove valuations and also to raise additional capital to delever where there is a exposure to short-term debt. In the large run, about 10% of debt books are in, and that's an average, 
are in short-term revolving credit facilities. About 34% of leverage sits within the portfolio level. It's generally long-term fixed cost or largely head. So there isn't a large amount of balance sheet distress here, but we do think the market will reward those companies that have really actively managed the shorter-term piece of debt, which is, of course, the most expensive. Revolving credit facilities tend to be variable rate, and of course, higher interest rates will be meaningfully impacting those. But it is a small proportion of the debt book, so overall impact on returns has been quite modest to date. But investors, I think, should reward the managers and boards that have continued to increase transparency in this difficult market and really be clear on their capital allocation priorities. So it's not necessarily a question of one solution suits all. Is that what you're saying? Otherwise, if you're given a choice between doing a share buyback, investing a new project or paying down debt, it's not always the same answer, is it? You don't have a preferred order of priorities for boards when you're looking at this given the size of the discounts. Is that be fair or does it still differ a lot? from? That is fair. I definitely look at the portfolio level statistics. It's interesting. We've had Octopus Renewables publish their results today and their sort of emphasis was very much not on buybacks, although, of course, the board confirms they'll always keep them in consideration, but very much on they're going to start divesting of some assets, uh, a small degree, over the next six months, and they'll use that money to pay down their revolving credit facility. They are at the higher end of the gearing spectrum, so they do, I think, need to put some work into that and the remaining proceeds of any divestments that they do make, they would look to reinvest in some construction assets where, interestingly, they make the point that they believe by putting the money to work in new build construction assets, which are relatively short term in their duration of construction to completion, 12 to 18 months, they believe they can deliver double digit returns from that kind of investment. That's just to be clear, not to say the project IRRs a double digit, but that that impact on NAV from taking an asset through construction to completion could deliver some attractive double digit returns over that one-off period. So I think the emphasis is on managers and boards to really set those opportunities out to investors so that they can decide what is the appropriate use of their funds over time. But there's a mix of approach. We have some buybacks, some needing to pay back the debt where it's higher levered and higher exposed to shorter term finance and Octopus would be in that camp. We don't have a set rule, but we think all things should be considered. I guess even if you're right about where we are in the cycle, there's no kind of immediate prospect of any of these trusts going back to trading at a premium on the whole. So that means that there won't be any new competition coming in. So that's quite a good environment for some of these trusts as well, isn't it? As I say, we think the fundamentals of the underlying portfolios are strong. And that is really important for maintaining interest in the asset class. We think the implied returns are attractive. We think the future ability to deliver returns is attractive. We had recent results out from international public partnerships and BBGI, both of which were able to say to investors, we can continue to grow our dividends in the case of IMPP at a rate of 2.5% per annum for the next 20 plus years. For BBGI, we can grow at 2% a year for the next 15 years. And that's assuming no new assets are added into the mix. We're not expecting a big re-rating overnight, of course. There needs to be several catalysts for that. And I think the ongoing proof of valuations that we're seeing is a positive. We haven't seen any major M&A in this space yet. We did see it back in 2018 when discounts appeared briefly over political risk. Whether that comes back again, as I say, given the fact that we are seeing private markets, pension fund money, other areas paying valuations ahead of where current listed portfolios are trading. And in some cases, particularly in the renewable energy space, you've got portfolios of operating capacity 
with locked in debt, low rate, long term, fixed, and you can't build these portfolios for cheaper. And that has to be valid to somebody. When the sector turns, it can turn quite quickly, but we just see lots of potential positives as to why picking up these discounts will be a positive for performance over time. Let's just take some of the subsectors. Then you mentioned the sort of mid-market and social infrastructure. So the BBGI, the Hickel and the INPP, for example, they obviously the ones which have the lower yields and therefore they look less good against gilts on the first view because the distance between their yields and the gilts has come down a long way. But they have got inflation-linked uh, cash flows going a long way out of the future. They're on very different uh, discounts, aren't they? Hickel's on a much wider discount than BBGI, for example. Is that down to specifics or is it just a, a general rating of perceived quality? It is specifics. I mean, liquidity plays a part in that. BBGI shares are slightly less liquid, but there is a difference in dividend cover, quite a notable difference. Hickel has had some cash constraints from its underlying portfolio. That's not to say that the assets aren't generating cash, but that the cash hasn't flowed up to the holding company yet. So they've been maintaining a flat dividend, whereas both BBGI and IMPP have continued to grow their dividends. And I think that's really the main difference behind the ratings. Hickel is just about covering its dividend 1.03 times. We'll see where they get to in September. One of their assets is now back distributing again. Another one expected in the next 12 months or so. So we'll see where they get to at the portfolio cash level. But that's really the main difference. And actually, yields from those low-risk cash flows are well in excess of 6%. And that is current dividend yield. And let's remind ourselves that both BBGI and IMPP have said we can grow our dividends at a rate of our respective run rate, which for IMPP is 2.5% per annum, for BBGI it's 2% per annum, for the next 15, 20 years. So today's yield is 6 and a bit percent, but the yield based on today's share price for those stocks is obviously a lot higher because of that embedded potential for dividend growth from this point. Current dividend for IMPP is 8.133 pence. Next year, it'll be 8.33 pence. When that yield continues to rise, if the share price stays the same and that dividend growth comes through, then the yield is in double-digit territory looking forward. So we must remember that these are not static dividend payers, and that's the key to remember here, particularly when comparing it with gilts. Of course. Well, let's look at some of the renewables then. Bluefield Solar and Foresight Solar, they too have slightly different ratings and slightly different yields as well. How would you compare those two, for example? Both are attractively priced stocks for sure. But I think really why Bluefield commands more of a premium to the solar peers is firstly, its historic returns have been quite significantly superior to both of the other two solar funds and indeed is one of the top performers in the entire renewable energy space. And the reason that's the case for Bluefield is they've just had a very consistent hedging program, which has allowed them to mitigate the power price lows. Don't forget back in 2020, we saw power prices in the £20 a megawatt range. And they've also been able to capture highs. So they've been able to deliver really consistent earnings growth and fully covered dividends in each period at the top end of their peer group. And that's really quite highly valued. So they've shown strong capital discipline. They didn't buy any assets between 2017, 2020. They've managed the cycles very conservatively. And that has come through in their return numbers. Looking forward, they are in a stronger position from a dividend cover perspective because of that quality of their hedging strategy. So in excess of two times is their dividend cover compared to sort of 1.3 to 1.5 for the peers. And that is valued by the market. 
What about Greencoat UK Wind? They would claim, I think, that they've got the highest implied rate of return from where they are at the moment. But there's a lot of issues around wind at the moment. There was a ban on onshore development of wind and a number of offshore developers have cancelled or pulled out of projects offshore. They obviously have a very strong set of cash flows looking forward. But uh, are they going to suffer or benefit from this apparent slowdown in uh, offshore development in particular? It's a business we like a lot. Not only does it generate a lot of cash, there are risks to be mindful of in terms of merchant exposure and how that works over time. But it's a high quality business generating significant levels of cash flow. And they, I think, continue to be beneficiaries of the market. They're pulling out of development whilst it's capturing all the headlines. And there's plenty of focus on our issues about reaching our net zero journeys in all the respective geographies. And that recent auctions, we've seen no offshore wind receiving any of those because pricing has changed, but the floor price that's being offered has not changed to reflect the higher costs. So that affects developers rather than funds like Greencoat UK Wind. And perhaps you could argue they've got such a large, they say they're the buyer for choice for utilities. It doesn't change their opportunity set. It may at the margin even help their pricing potentially, but we think they're pretty well positioned because it's such a significant market and they are a significant player in it. So providing they can manage those cash flows that they keep generating, they'll have opportunities to continue to invest at their target returns. So we think they're generally well positioned, even in the current macro. And then quickly on energy storage, it's a riskier proposition, obviously, and some specific uh, operational issues around some of them. What do you think about the energy storage trusts? They've obviously not been immune to the derating. They held up quite well for quite some time. So post the budget in September last year, they actually continued to perform quite well into the start of 2023, offering yields of four and a bit percent, which was well below gilts at the time and was a, a note of caution that we flagged because, of course, the big difference with storage is that there are a lot less contractual cash flows available for these portfolios. And we have seen the impact of that in recent results and none of the funds are covering their dividend from cash flows from the portfolio. It just shows you if you don't have that contractual underpin, you are obviously open to the vagaries of those revenue lines moving around a lot and their dividend cover whilst they set high dividend targets. At the moment, if you want a combination of visibility of your earnings, it's elsewhere in the sector for me. That's not to say storage isn't an absolutely critical part of the transition. It absolutely is. But we currently just feel it's probably better suited as part of a diversified exposure. Hopefully, the funds can continue to improve their dividend cover. And I think they will need to do so to see any meaningful, strong re-rating. I haven't mentioned one of the class animals in the field, I suppose I could call it that, which is 3i infrastructure. They have the smallest discount and very strong track record. What's your view on that one? It's been around since 2007, so it's operating a track record speaks for itself. It's the sector leader in returns. The portfolio has changed quite significantly over time. They've switched strategy back in 2015 to focus on mid-market. Since then, they've continued to deliver impressive returns. I think they've got a really strong divestment track record. Their most recent divestment was at a meaningful uplift to their March valuation. They've got a good portfolio of assets placed in the areas you would want to be in the context of economic growth. And they're just very strong at managing those investments. So that's one of the reasons why their rating is tighter than some. They're not seen as a bond proxy because they have a limited interest rate exposure where the discount rate is concerned. The team were able to give enhanced disclosure on their portfolio level gearing 
and given comfort to the market that there's no refinancing hiccups to be expected there either. In times of nervousness and uncertainty, the market does look to quality and we'd like to think that they'll continue to show the market the strength of their asset management and portfolio management skills. And then moving to the other end of the scale, we could look at digital infrastructure. Those shares are relatively newcomers to the market. They're both trading well below their issue price and they're all on what appears to be very large discounts. What are your thoughts about those in the current environment? Well, I think the two digital focus stocks are in a slightly different position from a market risk perspective. And as you know, Digital Nine has got some portfolio specific issues to work through, which are really the key behind its discount. We don't believe the discount of Cordia should be anywhere near as wide as it is. From a balance sheet perspective, they're fundamentally better placed. They've got the operational flexibility to fund growth capex. It's a very strong management team that continues to buy the shares and their active management strategy, I think we'll continue to see them generate good returns from the underlying. They've been buying well recently. One of the points that they've flagged about the market changes in recent months is it is proving to show some opportunities to them. And they were able to buy an asset recently in Ireland at a very attractive multiple. So we think that they're well positioned in a completely different position to Digital Nine. That's not to say that Digital Nine doesn't have some positives in terms of its underlying assets, but we just think that the market can more clearly focus on the quality of the underlying businesses in Cordiant than it can at the moment in Digital Nine because of the issues it has with its revolving credit facility and the challenges it has had on meeting its dividend fully covered from cash flow. Of course, Cordian is covering its dividend 1.5 times. And because of the accretion payments within the Arkiva investment, Digital Nine is very significantly uncovered. And that in this kind of climate is a major concern. So there's a big difference in the position of these portfolios. And we think that the market rating differential, Cordian should not be trading as wide as it is in the context of their discount. My next question concerns those trusts which are basically diversified. So in other words, instead of offering you a pure solo or a pure wind or pure digital exposure, I'm thinking of things like Trig, the Renewable Infrastructure Group, and Octopus Renewables, and I guess to some extent Greencoat Renewables. Do you think it's an advantage or a disadvantage to offer investors a kind of diversified portfolio, either by geography or by asset type, or is it actually something that carries a small uh, penalty with it? Diversification is good managing risk in all instances, but we possibly might see, and we kind of agree with, for instance, Cordian, which on the face of it only really has four major investments, which might seem like a concentrated area, but individually within the businesses that they invest in, they've got a very large range of assets, which they can monetize at different points. And so they would argue is still quite diversified in the context of the cash flows that can be generated and the risk and return profile that can be generated from those. So diversification, you've got to dig below several layers, in my opinion, rather than the high level sort of geographic or technology based diversification points that a lot of people focus on. Finally, just thinking about the sector as a whole, obviously there's been issues around the need for consolidation that some trusts are are too subscale. And then we've had one-off idiosyncratic situations like Thomas Lloyd Energy Impact, which perhaps is best glossed over. Look away now. But do you think that the sector is going to rationalise a lot or is it uh, we're just going to lose a few at the margin? 
It's the most asked question, isn't it, really? And I think there is an ever-increasing demand for greater liquidity in businesses. And I think when we're in challenging general markets, equity markets, there is a demand from investors to be able to sort of concentrate down their holdings to higher quality, larger liquid names. There are a number of smaller trusts where you have to step back and you have to therefore really understand the pipelines that these businesses have. And I think that's going to be key to valuation as well. Those businesses that can show that they can grow over time accretively and deliver that liquidity to investors over time are going to be the businesses that stay. And those that can't really point to a meaningful proprietary pipeline might well come under pressure from investors to do something. So that was Colette Ord, Head of Infrastructure Research at Numis Securities. So a very interesting take on where we are in the cycle for those particular sectors. So my first question to Ben Conway, Head of Fund Management at Hawksmoor Investment Management, moving on from our previous discussion about the importance of costs and cost disclosure regulations and the impact they have on investment trusts, was to talk about some of the other things that he thinks are important when considering the future of investment trusts as a sector. Obviously, at the moment, we have very wide discounts. We've seen a lot of derating over the past 18 months or so. So there are some challenges here, which I know, Ben, you're keen to have the community address. But I should start yeah. perhaps by just emphasizing that uh, you are an investor in investment trust. You're a fan of investment trust. And you say quite fairly in your campaign letter you put out recently about the issue of investment trust that you don't claim to have a monopoly on wisdom. So where are you coming from with all this in just in broad terms? What's uh, prompted you apart from the need for some regulated change like cost disclosure, to get on the investment trust case. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for having me back on. And I'm glad you um, qualified at the outset um, in saying that you don't have a monopoly on wisdom, because I would hate for people listening to think that there's some arrogant twerp who thinks he or any of my colleagues know everything, because we, we don't. We just care deeply about the sector. So what you're referring to is our recent blog series on um, we need to talk about investment trusts, in which we put forward a, a series of recommendations on the sector. And it's not it's not anything particularly new. We've always cared deeply about the sector. But we're particularly aggravated, frustrated, whatever you like, about the current environment. The cost disclosure regime that we spoke about last time is just one aspect of that. But it is only one aspect of that. But we also believe there's a whole host of other issues where we could see improvements. And ultimately, what we want to see is a higher probability of more trusts in the sector trading at a premium. Because what's the point of the sector? One is that the point of having a stock market listing is access to growth capital. Unlike with listed commercial companies, you can't raise capital in the equity market unless your share price is above your NAV per share, which is quite a tough test. It's pretty annoying having almost the entire sector trading at a discount. That needs to be addressed. And the second point of an investment trust being listed harks right back to 1868 when the first investment trust, Foreign and Colonial Trust, was launched. And I quote, to provide the investor of moderate means the same advantage as the large capitalist. What that basically means is it's democratising access to assets that people of more modest means wouldn't ordinarily have access to. And that's particularly true over the past 10 years, where we've seen this wonderful amount of issuance in alternative asset classes, which hitherto only the very wealthiest investors with access to private funds could get access to. So we need a healthy sector so it can grow and thrive so that the democratisation of investment can continue. 
Well, there's quite a few things to unpick there, quite a few particular issues that you would put under this broad heading of getting the investment trust universe back to where it should be, as, as you say, a source of growth capital and a means for private investors to access interesting and profitable investments. So let's start with this issue of the discounts. We know that the universe as a whole has gone to a big discount. There are very few trusts still trading at a premium. And many of those that were trading at premium only two years ago have gone to big discounts. But is this any more than just the market cycle at work here? There is a correlation between the level of discounts and the state of the financial markets at the time, you know, risk on, risk off, if you like, to put it uh, in its crudest form. So this could just be a cyclical phenomenon. But you're saying that isn't necessarily the case. Isn't necessarily the case. And even if it was the case, it doesn't excuse some of the behaviours or lack of behaviours on the part of some investment trusts and companies. First of all, this debate about why are discounts wide, it's a really difficult one. It's a bit like having the debate of how many fairies can you fit on the uh, top of a pin, because we're never going to be able to disaggregate a discount between the various factors. It's impossible to do. We can't perform a scientific controlled experiment of one environment and then see how that compares to what we're experiencing now to try and disaggregate the impact. For example, how much of the discount to NAVs in the alternative income space are down to higher interest rates or are down to the OCF issue or down to the fact that very, very few foreign investors are interested in UK PLC at the moment and on and on and on. We can speculate, of course we can speculate, and we'll have data points along the way that will help inform the opinion. I think, for example, an interesting recent development is with Roundtour Music, with an acquirer bidding 67% premium to spot price and 11.5% discount to economic nav. Well, that buyer is subject to higher interest rates at the moment. My point being is not all of that discount could have been down to the interest rate environment. You can't just park it at that, because if it were then the discount to economic nav that was bid for would have been an awful lot lower. I think it's potentially very lazy to just say, oh, it's cyclical. And and I have been subject to this kind of rhetoric where people say to me, oh, Ben, don't you know, every seven years they go through this and they always survive and la, 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 la. And it's very frustrating that because I think it's complacent thinking. And it doesn't mean because investment trusts have always come back that they will this time. Listen, I'm sure they will because they're just too fantastic a vehicle for this sector not to thrive. I think that's true. But it doesn't mean we need to be complacent and fix some of the things that need fixing. Even if you were to concede that it's just cyclicality and we just need to wait, what should you do in the meantime? So I'll give you an example. If there was a big discount that had emerged on a trust that you did think was down to the interest rate environment, and you thought that the discount had gone out because there are other competing assets, and say it's an alternative income thing or a property thing, and corporate bonds accessed via open-ended funds or directly are yielding lots so the share price needs to adjust downwards so that this thing yields to compete, right? So why is your investment advisor being paid on NAV? Let's just go straight into some of these issues which you think are contributory factors to the issues that are surrounding investment trusts at the moment. We'll come back to the main argument perhaps after that. So one of your things is the way that incentives are aligned across the sector. You think there are some structural flaws in the way that investment trusts are designed and, for example, how the managers are incentivized. That's right, isn't it? Absolutely. I think there needs to be absolute alignment between the investment advisor and the shareholder. And I think that being paid on net asset value does not achieve that. I jump straight to the rejoinders to that argument. And there are two main ones. One comes from the investment advisor who say, we're just responsible for the NAV. And then what the share price is, that's the board's consideration. I'm sorry, that's not good enough. 
if you're in any enterprise, surely you would want the people managing those assets to be working for you and having your interests aligned directly. Because you could have a, a situation where, as we do at the moment, the investment advisor is feeling none of the pain of the shareholder. I just think that is not correct. You could just about, I suppose, put up with it if you had a board that was so absolutely on top of the share price that they were able to ensure that it always tracked the NAV. But of course, that's almost impossible with some assets because they're so illiquid. They can't, for example, just instruct the investment advisor to sell some of the portfolio so they can buy back shares immediately as soon as anything goes to a discount. So that's just not achievable. The first thing is, is that the investment advisor, I think, has to be rewarded on market cap. I think it's a real shame that only 10% of the sector is currently like that. The second argument is we need to attract really good quality investment advisors and we need to reward them. What I'm saying is let's reward them on market cap. I'm not talking about the level of fees. Maybe it's a slightly higher added valorum fee, but on market cap. We need to attract really good investment advisors and you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. So you need to reward people properly, but it's just that alignment. Before we move on from that, are you in favour of performance fees or not? We've seen some egregious examples of them working very well for investment advisors or not working at all. What's your view on that? My view is pretty uncontroversial, actually. I think as long as they're well-constructed and justified, haven't got a problem at all with them. As a general rule of thumb, a performance fee is usually far more justified if the skill that is being deployed is in high scarcity. So, for example, they're not just good investment professionals. They may have another skill. If there's some other technical knowledge that is in very scarce supply, then I think you can start justifying fees that might be slightly above average in good times. But more pertinently, as long as the performance fee is structured correctly and not, for example, paid on returns above something that's not much higher than that's available on low-risk assets, that's inexcusable. So it just depends. There's an issue with some alternative asset trust that you can get paid a performance fee on the share price, even though you haven't actually sold an asset and it turns out to be worth a lot less than it is in the books at, for whatever reason. We've seen an example of that quite recently. On the question of fund managers, do you think that fund managers should be maybe forced to disclose how much money they have invested in the investment trust themselves? It's not mandatory for the investment managers to tell us unless it's above a disclosable limit. As long as the outcome of their careers is tied to the success of the vehicle, I think I'm ambivalent. It doesn't necessarily have to be solely achieved by investing in your own fund. The investment advisor running the thing can be excused for not having a huge amount of their wealth in it because they might want to diversify a little bit and have some wealth in other assets. Generally speaking, it is very healthy when the investment advisor does indeed own shares. Obviously, uh, directors do have to disclose their holdings in investment trusts and they are ultimately accountable. What should boards be doing as far as their investment advisor are concerned? What else could they do apart from basing the fee on the uh, share price rather than the NAV? Well, first of all, have to make sure that they're not too close to the investment advisor. There should be a very much an arm's length relationship. It's sort of what should be happening in the natural process of investment companies coming into creation. And that involves not becoming too close because if you're too close, then your judgment can become a bit biased and, and the board is there to really look after the shareholder and the board needs to be able to consider sacking the investment advisor if it's not doing a good job. When you think about the IPO process, the board's often the last thing to be chosen. When you do pre-marketing investment trusts, you have the page at the back and saying, well, the board is, we're currently interviewing and all the rest of it. This is a bit odd, doesn't it? The investment advisor's there and everything's in place, then we go and get the board. So I'm, I'm, I'm freely admit here that I'm talking about a problem and I haven't got a solution for it, which is the worst type of criticism to utter. But I'm just pointing out the risks in that, especially if 
you have a board that not every member of the board might have sufficient technical knowledge on the asset class, for example, if it's a, an asset class that's new to the market and, and you don't have a deep pool of board directors who are familiar with it, then I think that can be a problem. Generally speaking, what happens is you, you get people from the industry who know the asset class, but people from the industry who know the asset class might not be investment trust people. They might not be familiar with the structure and thinking about what the discount is. So tell us what you think board should be doing as far as share buybacks are concerned and in what circumstances should they go for them rather than some of the alternative options they have at their disposal as well, which obviously does include changing the manager in extreme cases. It includes fixing the balance sheet, maybe, if your balance sheet's stretched at certain times. It's a question of capital allocation, what you actually do with the money at your disposal. And reinvesting, obviously, is one of the things you want to be doing as an investment trust, as you've said at the very beginning, because that's what they're there for. So how do you think they should strike the balance, and are they striking the balance in the right way at the moment? You said the key words, capital allocation, decision. It really frustrates me when the buyback is talked about in the context of influencing the discount, because there is no empirical relationship between buying back shares and narrowing the discount. But that does not excuse not doing a buyback. A discount is not within most investment companies' control. It's only in control with portfolios of the most liquid assets where they can be realizable literally for minute to minute. Let's park that. The discount is otherwise a reflection of sentiment. It's a reflection of prevailing sentiment, which you can only indirectly impact. Or let's put it even more prosaically, is supply and demand. So if demand is high relative to supply, then you'll probably get more chance of a premium. If supply is high relative to demand, you're going to get a discount. More people willing to sell than wanting to buy. And again, that's just all a reflection of sentiment. All you can ever do is do things that impact sentiment. The decision to buy back shares is purely about efficient capital allocation. And it is what is the best use of shareholders' funds and and specifically what is going to get me the best risk-adjusted return. And the first thing to state is, is buying your own portfolio. Comparing buying your own portfolio to buying something new, there's two completely different risks there for a start because you know your portfolio reasonably well. And if that portfolio, you're able to buy it at a, a very, very large discount, where you can quantify your IRR pretty easily. So there are very, very rarely better uses or more accretive uses in terms of NAV per share than buying your own shares. And I think that the burden of proof, this is what's so frustrating. You shouldn't really be asking me this question. The burden of proof should always be on the board. Why are you not buying back shares? And when you see activity such as, let's say, there's some liquid resources that can be invested and a decision is taken by the board or the investment advisor announces that they're going to invest in a new project or going to buy a new asset. If the investment company is trading at a bit discount, what should be happening as a matter of good practice is the board should be saying, we know we could have bought the shares back, but we ran a test and we think this is a more accretive use of these funds. And here is the maths behind it. That should be absolutely standard. So we're just starting to see some boards, I think, do that. There's no better example recently. You know, I don't want to start talking my own book. As it happens, when this announcement took place, you didn't own any shares in it. So I think I can hand on heart say, fantastic, well done. It's Pantheon. If you look at the detail of that announcement, it's just perfect. Talking about the decision to buy back shares out of liquid resources in terms of efficient capital allocation, and then talking about how it will be done in future out of future profitable realisations, and then talking about the test that will be conducted 
which needs to be passed for these buybacks to happen. And that's perfect. The beauty of this is, is what really should be happening. I think it's a bit like forward guidance with central banks. I'm not sure if this is a perfect analogy. If- Let it go where you want it to go, yeah. You know, if you look back to uh, personal assets, for example, which we know is one of the first to implement a zero discount policy, and similarly with capital gearing as well, a lot of it is about credibility. I think the, uh, the yeah. example of personal assets, they only ever had once bought back shares in the first instance, but because everybody believed that they would buy them back, if it did go to a discount, the discount disappeared effectively for a long, long, long time anyway. So it's about credibility and about whether implicitly or explicitly the board is doing that kind of calculation that you yeah. just mentioned. I guess people come back to you and say, well, that's all very well, but A, we may actually think that we're trading on a medium-sized discount. We may actually genuinely believe that the return we're going to make by reinvesting any surplus cash is greater than the return we'd get from doing share buybacks. Or in the case of many alternatives, they'd say, well, we don't have the spare cash to do it. So what are we meant to do in those circumstances? So a couple of things there. If there are more accretive uses of the cash, i.e. buy some similar assets to those that you already own or spend it on a new project, what does that tell you about the NAV? Is the NAV properly valued? Do you see where I'm going with that? So that's the line of questioning that we would pursue. So we say, okay, let's see, you know, you're on a medium sized discount. It's not massively wide. So you're going to say, well, we're only in a medium discount. We think there's, there's great opportunities out there. So well, but your current portfolio, which is similar to these opportunities, is, is valued here. Let's just say it's 8% IRR. And there's an opportunity here for a 12% IRR. Why does that exist? You know, it's similar to what you've got at the moment. So you've got to pursue that logic. And then on the second thing is, with you know, if, what if they don't have any cash? Well, it's about justifying the nav and actually saying, yes, I know you've got assets that you want to hold for the long term, but you don't have to sell the entire portfolio. But maybe you should consider selling something in the portfolio to raise the cash to buy back the shares. And I think, again, that sort of activity is too little carried out. And justifying where your nav is, especially if your investment advisor is being paid on it, is so crucial. Because you just open yourself up, I think, to so much criticism. And if you've got an investment advisor that's paid on NAV and the shares are on a big discount, you really got yourself in a corner there. Because if you say, oh, we're on a discount because interest rates are really high, you're basically saying my NAV is overvalued. So don't pay your investment advisor based on NAV. Sorry, I keep coming back to you. But yeah, back to the point. If you've got less liquid asset classes, okay, fine. But you still, I think, should be prepared to sell some of it. It may take a bit longer, raise the funds to give you the ability to buy back some shares. And we are, seeing that. Well. we are seeing that beginning to happen. Obviously, that takes time, particularly in the alternatives. There are liquid assets by definition, and you can't just get rid of them very quickly. So you may have to live with a discount for a while if that's your chosen option. You would concede that, I think. Yeah, you can't sell these things in five minutes. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, I think through time, you've still got to go through that process and you've got to build that credibility. I think you can gain that credibility even in illiquid asset classes that will mean that you wouldn't necessarily have to do that buyback activity in the future once people can clearly see that you've got a track record for acting correctly. All this logic applies to whether you think that investment companies are in terminal decline or whether you think there's just a cyclical phenomenon. All this behaviour should be doing regardless of what your belief is, because when the cycle, if, when it comes back and we're back at premium, you watch. As soon as you go back to a premium, whoosh, you're on a 2% premium for five minutes and everybody will be desperate to issue shares. So there has to be some symmetry. I agree. I think the point about symmetry is very well made. If you are one of those trusts which did issue a lot of secondary issuance, so because your shares were trading at a premium or while they were trading at a premium, then it is perfectly fair that you should be expected to buy them back on the same measure. And we have seen examples of trust where that doesn't happen. And that, I think, is, as you say, a, a genuine cause for concern. 
I'm pretty strong on that and say, tough. Look, it does come back to supply and demand. Why is the thing listed? If buybacks are never going to help reduce the discount, it's either telling you that the NAB was just wrong in the first place, and that's why the discount persists, or it tells you that the listed market isn't the right place, isn't the right forum for these assets, because listed market maybe isn't giving them their full value. So I think that an absolute cliche, I'm going to say here, you have to risk losing to win. And you have to make people believe as a board that you would be willing to let this investment company wind up or disappear. And without that credibility, you are not going to, I think, thrive. It comes back to the point that a discount should be the anomaly. A premium to NAV should be what really everybody should be aiming for and should be the norm. Otherwise, again, I come back to this point, as well as democratising access to these asset classes via this wonderful vehicle, the only point of listing is access to growth capital. How would you put gearing into the picture of all this? That's always touted as one of the great advantages of investment trusts. They are mm-hmm. able to use gearing to increase returns when the uh, returns are good and to work against them when they're bad. We have seen this dramatic change in interest rates, and that has had an effect both on comparable yields you get by investing in government bonds and so on, but also in pushing up the cost of debt. Would you not say that it is in cases of investment trusts that are using gearing, in the short term, they may actually be training a discount because they have that gearing. Do you think investment trusts should not be using gearing? So the first thing is want to caveat and say, uh, not, not really a caveat, but say that how quickly interest rate went up caught everyone by surprise. I think the swiftness with which that happened has caught out even the most skillful of treasurers and CFOs throughout the land. So I've got some sympathy with boards on that point, not least myself, because I remember doing a budgeting exercise we're renovating a house and I remember thinking, well, in two years' time, what, are we going to have to refinance this? Let's put an absurd number in there um, before I have to refinance. I remember putting six in thinking, I'll never get to six. And here we are. So I'm not going to be a hypocrite and just criticise everybody, uh, every single investment company's got structural gearing and found themselves in trouble. But we tend to, when I say we as a fund managers here at Hawksmoor, we don't really like gearing. The reason we don't like gearing is because essentially it's financial engineering. You could say it adds value because if used properly on the appropriate asset, then it amplifies returns more than you're increasing your risk. I think that's kind of the theory behind it. But it's still effectively artificial return. It always comes back to the following. Let's say there's an investment company that's using moderate gearing. We will always say is that if this asset wasn't geared, would it be providing an attractive enough level of return? That's the first test. And if the answer to that question is no, then don't go near it because all the gearing is doing is taking that return to a level that's attractive enough to get people to invest in it. That's the wrong reason. On the other hand, if the gearing is being used in modest amounts to increase the return for a smaller incremental addition to your risk because the asset class really suits it, let's say, for example, because the income it's deriving is based on a really long lease with a very good counterparty. Okay, fair enough. We get that. That's okay. But it has to be moderate. When it comes to vanilla equities, it's just a bell and a whistle. It's nice to have. It doesn't impress us very much. It's just adding beta. I wouldn't necessarily say that it's the very best use of the structure. For us, the very best use of the investment company structure is the fact that you can access less liquid asset classes. That's the main thing. So one more point I want to put you there. A lot of alternative assets are valued on a mark-to-model basis. You plug in a lot of numbers, you plug in a discount rate, you plug in some cash flows and and so on, and you come up with a number. That may or may not be right. We don't know. You can prove that by trying to sell it, as you've said already. 
But on the other hand, when you've been through this period of dramatic change in interest rate environment, the whole macro environment, and we've had COVID in Ukraine and all these kind of factors that are not normal, people are naturally uncertain about the future, including the financial markets. There may not be such a thing as a proper NAV at any one point in time. So it's a question of how much uncertainty you're plugging into your model to value your alternative assets. In those circumstances, the market may be making a judgment about whether they're realistic or not, but it doesn't mean to say that they're right. And so you might well get a discount for behavioral reasons rather than because it's actually logically right. And in that kind of fast-moving environment, who's to say that the board should be immediately taking remedial action? I take all of those points on board. And incidentally, you just gave inadvertently reason 325 for why fees should be a market cap, because no one knows what the NAV is. I'm not suggesting that there's going to be some halcyon upland where every single investment trust is always trading at a premium for all the reasons you've just said. After all, this is what makes a market. My judgment might be that the NAV that has been created by some magic box is understated. And if I think it's understated because I've got some view of the world, and that's not how we think at Hawksmoor, but let's just say I have some really strong macro view of the world, which means that this NAV that's reliant on power prices, and I've got this really strong view that power prices are going to go skyrocketing, and I think the NAV is going to be roaring higher and is massively understated, and I can buy it at a big discount. Well, fantastic. That's what makes a market. So, yeah, I think I'm violently agreeing with you. Well, let's move on to another issue then, which is about the supply of investment trusts. As you said, we've pointed out that an existing investment trust, by convention at least, cannot go on issuing new shares or raising new money if they are trading at a discount. But there is another way to create more supply, of course, and that is to have more IPOs, to have more investment trusts being created. We obviously haven't seen that happen in the last 18 months either. There hasn't been any IPOs of really any note at all, and very little secondations as well. Do you think that the IPO process needs to be looked at very carefully and is suboptimal, shall we say? Perhaps you could explain why you say that and what you think the barriers are to the creation of new investment trusts in this kind of environment we're in now. As you rightly pointed out, it's going to be very difficult to imagine IPOs happening while so much of the universe, nearly all of it, is trading at a discount. I think that the IPO market is is effectively shut. The thing that frustrates me most and I get a lot of pushback on this. Well, we, I should say. And brokers have been fantastic, by the way, over the past few weeks. Lots of brokers have approached us to talk about this very issue. But, you know, I just want to say it's fantastic to see that happening. And none of this is intended as a criticism of the broking community whatsoever. But it's an observation. Can you tell me of one other area in our world where the day one investor pays the launch costs for a vehicle or in doing so launches a business for an entity? And takes essentially all the risks of that. So let's imagine an entity that raises money to invest in an alternative asset. They may or may not have another fund. They may be brand new. And you pay a 2% premium. So you give over 100 quid and you get 98 quid of cash back for that investment advisor to spend on assets. And thereafter, that investment advisor will be paid on net asset value and you will just get the share price. And in doing so, you've launched a business. And then let's go forward 20 years. You bought at a 2% premium, and now you're sitting on a 15% discount. So you've lost 17% of value. Bosh, there you go. Meanwhile, the investment advisor has, in the good years, grown the thing massively and perhaps even sold their business to a larger fund management company and made themselves very wealthy in the process. 
I don't like that dynamic. I don't like the fact that that day one shareholder paid 2% premium to give someone cash to go and invest and bear all that execution risk and effectively go a long way to launching a business and didn't enjoy anywhere near the fruits of that activity than the investment advisor did. So one of the things we talk about, for example, is potentially allowing the day one shareholders to have some share in that success. Well, that's going to be a big ask, given the history of the fund manager business in particular. I go back far enough when actually it wasn't 2% you paid if you got into an open-ended fund. It was more like 5%. So if it was 8% in one or two cases, quite egregious, it has to be said. But in the open-ended world, let's use that as an example today, though, because that's where we live in today. Founding shareholders or the unit holders in the open-ended world get better economics than everyone else. You get founder share classes, for example. The founder share classes can be fantastic deals. Okay, but the general point remains the same, that this has always been the case, that if you have a choice between investing in investment trust managed by XYZ investment advisor and investing in the shares of XYZ advisor, if they're in any good, you will do better out of investing in the shares of the investment advisor than you will by investing in the vehicle itself because you actually get a kind of geared return from any kind of asset gathering that they do. But my point is, it's a very specific example with an investment trust launch where a big pool of capital is raised on day one. And let's say the first continuation vote is after five years. So you're basically handing over a five-year revenue stream to somebody. Yeah. So what do you think we should do? How should it be structured that would give the founding shareholders what they deserve in your book? Well, there are lots of things you could potentially do, all of sort of varying degrees of impact. The first thing I want to say is I think that generally speaking, brokers earn their fees and they've got a tremendous role to play. So I'm not saying brokers shouldn't charge a fee. Definitely not. But who is the main beneficiary of that day one launch? Lots of people come back to me and say, Ben, if everybody thought like you, nothing would ever get launched. Well, the answer is is not to then just expect every day one shareholder to pay a 2% premium. The answer is to change the economics so that you've got more people clamoring to invest on day one. So I think one of the things you could do is... As explained, if the investment advisor, particularly if they don't have a track record, or this is going to form a major part of their business, or the business might even have been set up to launch this vehicle, etc. Well, potentially, could the investment advisor not pay those launch costs? And could those launch costs be paid over a period of time? I think the economics of it is at minimum, you get a, let's use round numbers, you get five years at 1% AMC, the launch costs are 2% of day one. I mean, that's still 2% upfront to receive 1% a year for five years. The economics still stack up fantastically well. If you don't have the money as an investment advisor, maybe someone would lend it to you on terms that aren't too outrageous. So at least a day one investor could get a pound of assets for their one pound. You could do things like subscription shares. I mean, subscription shares are, are difficult to value. And in reality, if you gave your day one shareholder subscription shares in sort of Black Scholesy type stuff, they're not worth anywhere close to the 2%. But at least you could structure it that if the investment advisor achieved the returns that they said they were going to achieve over the first year, those subscription shares would pay you back your 2%, for example. But then the pushback is, well, lots of people can't hold subscription shares because they're derivative-like things and there's complexity issues. You could give day one shareholders a stake in the investment advisor itself. So you give them some shares in that. And on and on and on. My point is, there's quite a few things you can do and at least try. But the feedback when we say this, you know, we've said this to a blue in the face. It's not that we just started saying this. We've said this from day one. I mean, we've got a fiduciary duty to our unit holders. And we just don't think that we're obeying that fiduciary duty by paying £1 for 98p of cash with a whole load of execution risk. So we say that up front. We say we'll do the pre-IPO meeting. And then if we like it, we'll invest in it when the execution risk is diminished. And chances are better than evens, will be able to buy at a discount rather than a 2% premium. So we have been saying this to a blue in the face, and the feedback does come back to us time and time again, saying that we're in the minority. So 
I don't know. Maybe I'm missing something here, Jonathan. Most shareholders have been willing to pay out. It appears that they are, yeah. The really important thing, though, is to get more investment trusts launched. In other words, at the moment, there's a lot of people saying the sector must consolidate. We've got to get rid of all the subscale trusts that don't work and so on, that are too small for modern-day wealth managers to invest in and so on, cost disclosure problems and all that. But actually, we want to have a steady stream of new investment trusts coming to the market, I would argue, even if they are quite small to start with. Every investment trust started quite small, with some recent exceptions, and they're the ones that become successful later on. But there are a lot of barriers to actually getting to the market, even if you uh, overcome the particular issues you were talking about. There just aren't enough new ones coming to the market that are of any quality. This is a point that David Stevenson made in his recent CityWire article, which I really agreed with, which is that to have a thriving investment company sector, it's fine to have lots of smaller ones. I agree. That's really, I mean, the point I was trying to make. That's exactly what I But think. smaller ones that stay small. So, for example, River Mercantile Microcap returns capital when it gets above a certain size, so it continued to fulfil its mandate of only investing in microcap companies. So some trusts don't want to get too big. They have to return capital. But I think it's really disappointing is what I'm coming to. I think it's really disappointing that one of the consequences of wealth management consolidation, i.e. you know, big wealth managers getting bigger and bigger and bigger, is that the requirement for ever greater amounts of liquidity. I think that's really, really sad. And that's basically reducing consumer choice. You're right, we need a continual stream of new supply coming to the market. But You can't just keep supplying new stuff to the market without there being demand for it. You've got to create the environment for demand to be there. This is basically what everything we talk about comes down to, doing everything we possibly can to keep increasing demand for this wonderful sector. And that means top-class corporate governance. It means having a regulatory environment that causes a thriving and disparate wealth management sector. So that means a sector that isn't just made up of ever bigger, bigger, bigger behemoths that you've got lots of boutiques out there who don't need all the liquidity. It's proper recognition of costs and how you disclose those costs and on and on and on. But I think right now it's very, very clear that we have oversupply relative to demand. And I think it's not just purely the fact that too many things were launched over the past 10 years. It's the fact that demand has fallen off a cliff. And that's what we've got to address. And sometimes to address demand, to bring demand back, you've got to shrink supply a little bit to increase the credibility, which is coming back to that sort of risk-losing to win point. Yeah. I guess the other point, therefore, that I should put you about the investment trust sector overall, which you don't perhaps mention in your analysis, is the real competition for investment trust, or many of them anyway now, is coming from ETFs and passive vehicles and so on. Investment trusts have structural advantages, which we often talk about, But are they sufficient, given all the things that you've talked about? There is a genuine competitive threat out there coming from a low-cost, relatively easy-to-launch passive vehicles like ETFs. Yeah, look, it's very healthy. It's fantastic these things are being launched because competition and choice is the lifeblood of any successful capitalist system. And it's what creates the environment for all actors in that system to improve and get better at what they do. So first thing is it's not a risk. You may want to see it negatively as a threat, but really what it should be doing is causing the parts of the investment company sector that may feel they're under threat to improve and do things to show that they're a better structure. You sort of casually said this. You said that ETFs and other similar vehicles can't replicate what investment companies do in alternative assets. Well, sorry, that's a major flaw. And investment companies, coming back to what I just said, the key advantage for us is their ability to hold less liquid asset classes. And they should be being held up right now as one of the UK's best financial services innovations. They've got a 155-year track record. 
They're proven and they are the answer to many of the things that this government and indeed probably the next government want to see solved, which is private sector money flowing into the UK economy via smaller listed companies, private companies and into UK infrastructure projects to ensure the health of this economy. And it's something that the Chancellor alluded to in his Mansion House speech. And the answer is staring there in our faces, which is investment companies. They should be being held up and promoted as the answer. And we've got the best sector in the world by a absolute distance with great heritage. That's why I'm so frustrated at the moment, because everything that politicians are saying that they want, the answer is staring them in their face. And we should have pension funds in particular really increasing demand for investment company shares. And that is what I would love to see unlocked. I would love to see the pension fund industry investing in investment company shares and we create a regulatory environment that promotes that and benefits that. And I think that what's so disappointing about the recent uh, discount widening is the views of pension funds that actually these things are quite risky. And they've been put off investment company shares at exactly the time that they should be attracted to them. That was Ben Conway, the Head of Fund Management at Hawksmoor Investment Management. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.